I think that perhaps the greatest measure of someone's maturity is how each one of us handles authority, how we handle power, uh, how we handle influence when that is given to us. In other words, how we respond when it dawns on us, when we have the realization that we are the most important person or have the most authority in the room. Whether it's the boardroom or the classroom or the locker room, whether you're at work, maybe at home with your family, uh, but at any moment, any time when you have that realization, all eyes are now on me. They're looking to me for answers. I'm the one in charge. I get to make the decision. I'm the most powerful person in the room. What do you do in that moment? It says a lot about you, uh, and what I do in that moment says so much about me. Uh, because one of the greatest reflections of our individual maturity is what we do with our influence, what we do with our power, and what we do with our authority. It's a huge indicator of what's going on inside. And, and few things are more disturbing. We've all seen this. We've all worked in these situations. We've all been a part of these. I think you would agree. Few things are more disturbing that when you see somebody with power or influence or authority and they leverage it for their benefit and completely neglect the people that they're responsible for. You know, we see this a lot. Uh, maybe we see it in politics. That could be an area where we see that play out at times. Uh, to neglect the people that have chosen to follow them or have no choice but to follow them. And at the same time, there are a few things more inspiring than a leader who has some sort of influence or some sort of authority who says no to herself or no to himself. They deny something they could embrace for their own benefit and they choose to benefit the people that they're responsible for. You know, we see a, a leader like Nelson Mandela who spent years and years and years in prison uh, with the goal of ending apartheid in South Africa. He sacrificed his own freedom in order to win freedom for his people. Uh, that's just one example of countless examples throughout history of leaders who were willing to do just this. They deny something they could embrace for their own benefit and choose to benefit the people that they're responsible for, the people that have chosen to follow them. And some of our favorite stories uh, are the men and women of influence and power, whether it's a politician or somebody we've worked for or somebody that we work with or maybe one of our parents, and they said no to themselves so they could say yes to us or to the people that have chosen to follow them. Now, my theory is this. <clears throat> none of us really know, none of us really know which lever we will pull. Nobody really knows what button they're going to push until somebody actually hands us the keys. Until somebody actually, you know, puts us in that position. We won't really know which way we go with this authority thing until we actually have the authority. That's when you realize who you are. Or in David's case, until we get the crown. Now, when David was a little boy, I say a little boy, actually he was in middle school uh, at the time. When David was in middle school, Samuel the prophet, who was the authority other than King Saul, showed up at David's home. And David wasn't there that day. Uh, he was out working. And Samuel the prophet showed up in his home and he said to David's father, Jesse, he said, I'm here on a mission. And as we would discover later, it was a secret mission. Okay? It wasn't public. It wasn't something people could know about. And the reason it was a secret mission is because Samuel's mission was to anoint the next king of Israel. God had told him to go do this. And the reason it was a secret is because Israel already had a king. That's a problem. 
His name was Saul, and he didn't like to have his authority questioned or undermined, let alone replaced. That wasn't something that Saul was going to take lightly. So yeah, they already had a king. So if you're going to anoint the next one when there already is one, you better keep your mission a secret. You don't want to be publicizing that. So he shows up, and he doesn't even tell Jesse why he's there. You know, the patriarch of the family, he doesn't even tell him what he's there for. He shows up. He says, Jesse, I've come here to do a special sacrifice. I want to invite all of your family to this special sacrifice. And the idea was this, that Samuel thought, when I get everybody there, as soon as I see the son of Jesse that's going to be the next king, I'm going to get the God nod you know, or the heavenly go-ahead. He's going to have that moment. Something's going to click. I'm just going to know that this is the guy, okay? And so Jesse invites all of his family to the special sacrifice, and Samuel is there, and he's scanning the crowd to try and figure out which one of these folks is going to be the next king. I don't know if he thought that he was going to glow or something. I don't know what Samuel thought, but he's looking to try to figure it out. And the text says this in 1 Samuel 16. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, which was Jesse's oldest son, okay, the firstborn who had all the rights and all the privileges. You kind of just defer to the firstborn in stuff like this when you're talking about, you know, choosing a king. Obviously, it's got to be the oldest, right? Ethan would agree. Um, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. You know, he thought this is easy, right? Firstborn, first kid, we don't even have to get to the sacrifice. Game over. I got this figured out. Slam dunk. Uh, but maybe you remember how the story goes from here. It doesn't really play out that way. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, which is very difficult to do because tall people are obviously the best. Uh, <laughs> when, you, when you meet somebody, the first thing you notice is what? It's not their IQ. When you meet somebody, it's not their manners. The first thing you notice is the way a person looks. We can't help it. That's the most evident, most obvious thing about people is their physical appearance. And all of us, even in ancient times, we ascribe value and ascribe sometimes authority and influence to people who look good. We're naturally drawn to people who are attractive. It's just human nature. But then God continues, for I have rejected him. Why? The Lord, we learned something really important here doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance. Yes, they do. Yes, we do. But the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, it's what's inside a man that makes a man. So ladies, don't be fooled by that outward appearance, okay? And it's what's inside a woman that makes the woman. So men, never mind, you're hopeless. Anyway, the story goes on. Six Count them, six sons later, still no king. And Samuel's starting to get a little frustrated. I mean, all the sons are there. They're starting to prepare the sacrifice, and Samuel's looking around like, maybe I missed something. I'm not hearing. And so finally he says to Jesse, I mean, imagine the awkward moment here as Samuel goes to Jesse. Um, Jesse, are these all the sons you got? You got any else? Let's just maybe just hang, hiding somewhere. Can you produce another son for me? I mean, I asked you to invite the whole family. Is this everybody? What a silly question. If you ask somebody to invite their family, but Jesse looks around and he realizes, oh, yeah. No, this isn't everybody. They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him right now. We're not going to sit down until he arrives. And so then David shows up. 
Little shepherd boy David, who's probably 13, maybe 14 years old, stinks like sheep. Samuel gets the God nod. God points him out and says, that's the one. God says to Samuel, however God communicated to Samuel, he's it. 1 Samuel 16, 12, and the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. And then this strange thing happens that they culturally understood this. We would be really freaked out. Samuel walks over to middle school David and pours this huge horn of oil over David's head, drips down his hair, over his clothes, down to his feet. He anoints him, and he gives him a blessing. He packs up his stuff, and he leaves. That would be strange. And the whole family's standing there like, what just happened? I mean, David, you know, little David, out by the sheep, smelly David, he's the one that the prophet of God just anointed in front of all of us. And there's no indication in Scripture that Samuel told Jesse what he had anointed David for, just that he anointed him and gave him a blessing. We don't know that anything was revealed to the rest of David's family in that moment. We just know that Samuel blessed him. And so uh, here's what we do know. Since he was a little boy, since he was this middle schooler, David knew that God had something special for him. David knew that God had blessed him for a purpose. Uh, And about 18 months from that moment, maybe two years, somewhere in that window is when he kills Goliath. So God started him on this trajectory in this moment. He becomes an overnight sensation. Then for the next seven years, David is in the good graces of the kingdom. I mean, David is tight with the king. The king says, hey, this kid's, this kid's popular. He's a rising star. I'm going to keep him close. You know, hey, look at this kid, Slade Goliath. Yeah, he's with me. So Saul is using David to increase his own stature and his own status. Uh, in fact, King Saul marries off one of his daughters to David. Uh, he becomes best friends with the king's oldest son, who's presumably going to be the next king. That's Jonathan. And for seven years, everything's great. And then, as we saw in the last couple messages, Saul gets threatened. He starts to get insecure. He gets jealous. He tries to kill David. He puts a bounty on his head. And David becomes a fugitive from the law for eight years. Seven years, things are great. Now, eight years, things are completely polar opposite. So for the next eight years, David's on the run, hiding with his band of merry men, trying to stay away from King Saul and everyone who supports King Saul, uh, all the while knowing that God has chosen him for something special, but he's hiding in caves and living off the land and running and never getting a good night's rest, and he's going, man, where's that blessing now? And all the while, if you read through this incredible story, all the while learning some extraordinarily important lessons, God is growing David through this season. And perhaps the most important lesson that David learned in the wilderness years was this lesson, that it's not about me. It's not about me. It's God's will, God's way, in God's time. It's God's will, God's way, in God's time. And if you hear nothing else today, please grab hold of that. Because this is the one that is so hard for all of us. Because we know what the promises of God are. We have a Bible full of God's promises. And we're like, but I don't see the promise right now, today, fulfilled in this way. But that's not how God's promises work. It's God's will in God's way in God's time. But God's promises are always true. Let me show you what I mean by sharing two incredible moments from David's years on the run. On two separate occasions, David has an opportunity to kill King Saul just gift-wrapped opportunities. One of them is a famous occasion where David is hiding in a cave, 
and King Saul's men are passing by, and David's men and David is going to wait for the king and all of his men to pass by, and then he's going to come out of the cave, sneak out behind, and then just continue in the other direction so he can get away. And right in front of the cave where David is hiding, you can't make this stuff up, King Saul realizes he has to go to the bathroom. I think it's one of only two references in the entire Bible about going to the bathroom. Uh, the other one is uh, King Eglon and, and Ehud, the left-handed judge. That's a fun one to read, too. But anyway, this is a great story if you teach middle schoolers, okay? So just file this one away. If you ever get stuck teaching middle school, Sunday school, this is a great story because it has to do with bodily functions, and they love that. Um, anyway, so Saul has to go to the bathroom. He stops, gets off his donkey, goes into the cave. David's hiding in the cave with his men. He's been in there a long time, so his eyes have adjusted. Saul's eyes have not. He can't see back into the cave. Saul stops in the mouth of the cave just beyond the point where anybody outside could see, and he begins to answer nature's call, okay? He's in the most vulnerable position possible, and all of David's men turn to him and say, and these are my words, or not theirs, you know, like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? God just delivered your enemy into your hands. He's gift-wrapped right there. In fact, here's what the text says in 1 Samuel 24. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So they're like, David, take the opportunity. Here it is. End this. Because David had said to them, guys, hang with me, stick with me. Things are tough now, but things are going to get better. God has something special in store for me. I've got the promise. I'm not sure what it is, but, you know, just stick around. We're, we're, we're going up. And David almost falls for this. He creeps up on King Saul. He's about to kill him and then walk out of the cave victorious, knowing that obviously everybody in Saul's army would immediately bow down and declare David their new king, you know, once he killed him. And as David is about to kill King Saul, he realizes, no, 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 no. I've done this once before, and I've done it wrong. I've already learned this lesson the hard way. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands again. I'm not going to try to make things happen on my own. Saul completes his task, goes and gets on his donkey, and they're about to leave, and now David appears in the mouth of the cave. And everybody in Saul's army knows that he could have taken the king's life, and he chose not to. But David is a bit mischievous, as we're about to find out, and he walks to the mouth of the cave, and he says, Yoo-hoo! I don't think that's what he said. Uh, but basically, he got everybody's attention, and he said, hey, Saul, yo, Saul, king. And everybody looks, and there's David, 1 Samuel 24. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never, ever harm you. Incredible moment in David's process of maturation. Then there's another story. A few months later, Saul and his army are in the desert of Ziph. It's a great word if you just want to say it for fun sometime. It's just a wide open plain with rolling hills. And there are virtually no trees, nowhere to hide. And David had sent spies out to track Saul's progress across this desert. And he always wanted to know where Saul was uh, so he could stay away from Saul. And a report comes back to him that they're in the desert of Ziph and they're camped out for the night. And David just can't resist. And so he takes a group of men up over a hill to watch the camp. And traditional movie scene, you know, they're lying on the hill with their binoculars. 
didn't really have those, but you can pretend. And they're watching the camp, and they're looking at Saul and his men. And they, the sun goes down, and King Saul did what kings do in those times. He puts his tent right in the middle, surrounded by all of his army, uh, completely surrounded by about 3,000 men. His spear is in the ground right next to his head because that's how the king slept. And as the sun went down, David couldn't resist, and he turns to his friend Abishai, and he says, Abishai, I have a really bad idea. Would you be willing to join me in my really bad idea? And Abishai says, absolutely, let's do it. So here's what happens. David and Abishai went right down into Saul's army at night. They go into the army at night, and there is Saul lying asleep Inside the camp, spear stuck in the ground near his head, Abner, who is the chief of the king's bodyguard, a position that used to be held by David. David was the chief of the king's bodyguard, uh, but now Abner is holding that place. He was the one responsible for protecting King Saul. Abner and the soldiers are lying right around him, and Abishai whispers to David. So they've crept past the guards. Okay, they're right into the middle of Saul's camp. What were they thinking? And Abishai whispers into David's ear, God has delivered your enemies into your hands. We missed this opportunity once. Now's the time to power up, David. Let's go. Now's the time to take what's ours. God wills it. How else can we explain the fact that we're standing right here in the middle of Saul's army? And no one has detected us. And we're standing next to the sleeping King Saul with his own spear right there. And then Abishai says, now look, David, I know you got all these religious convictions. You can't lay your hand on the Lord's anointed. I know you feel that way, but God hasn't told me I can't. So let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of that spear. I won't need to strike him twice. Just give me the go-ahead. In other words, David, I know you're all freaked out over the fact that he's the king. Just let me kill him. Imagine it, David. I'll take that spear right through the heart, his eyes wide open. The last person he sees in this life is your face. When his army wakes up, they will declare you king. See, this is why you should read the Bible, folks. I mean, I'm telling you, man, this is intense. And I'm skipping a lot of the story, okay? You really need to read this for yourself. But David whispered to Abishai in 1 Samuel 26, No, David said, don't kill him, for who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? He stands his ground. I refuse. This is too big for us. I refuse to violate the will of God in order to gain the blessing of God. Get that. I refuse to violate the will of God to try to gain the blessing of God. Because guess what? It won't work. I will not violate the will to gain the promise of God. I'm not going to violate the will of God to get what I think I deserve. This is not about me. However, let's have a little fun. And David says to Abishai, take Saul's spear, I'll take his water jug, his yeti, and they creep out of camp, and they go up on a hillside, and they wait for the sun to come up. And as the sun is coming up, and they are silhouetted against this hill, they're standing up on top of it, David cannot resist the temptation, and he begins to yell out from the hillside, Abner! Abner! Abner's chief of the bodyguard, and Abner, Abner, are you missing anything? And everybody recognizes David's voice. And they look, and there he is, silhouetted. He's holding up a spear, and it looks like he's holding up a water jug. And Abner looks around, and King Saul's spear is missing. His water jug is gone, too. And David shouts out, you are a poor excuse for a bodyguard. I came in the middle of the night, took the king's spear, which means I could have killed him, 
Abner, you deserve to die for being such a poor excuse for a bodyguard. He is trolling Abner hard. And then David and his men melt into the wilderness, and they're gone. David, here's the key, David refused to replace what God had put in place. David refused to replace what God had put in place. Why? God's will, God's way, in God's time. It's got to be God's will, God's way, in God's time. Well, eventually, and I'm skipping a lot here, eventually King Saul and his son Jonathan are killed by the Philistines in battle. This is way down the road, okay? Uh, The two men that stood in the way of David becoming the king, okay? Saul and Jonathan are both killed. Obviously, David's there. And the interesting thing is that the text tells us that David actually mourned the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan, we understand, it was his best friend. And the two men that stood in the way of becoming king, when they died, instead of throwing a party, he mourns their death. And so the tribe of Judah... Israel had 12 tribes. The tribe of Judah, which was the tribe David was from, they declared David king. So David is recognized by the tribe of Judah. Um, but a fellow named Ishbosheth, another great name, uh, who was one of King Saul's other sons, he declares himself king. So Ishbosheth, he claims to be king over 11 tribes. So David is now king over one tribe, and for seven more long years, there's a conflict between the house of David and the house of Saul. And throughout this conflict, David essentially just tries to stay out of the way. And people continually say to David, claim what is yours. Go after it. Claim what is yours. And over and over and over, David is like, no, it's God's will, God's timing, God's way. And I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. And if Ishbosheth has been declared king by those 10 or 11 tribes, then he's king, and I just need to stay out of the way. Seven years this goes on. And then finally, two brothers sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's taking a nap, and they murder him in his sleep. And they think they've done this great thing for David because now they have removed the last obstacle. This is it. The last obstacle to David being able to be king, becoming king over the entire nation of Israel. And so they cut off Ishbosheth's head and they take it to David to receive the reward and to give him the good news. The last obstacle had been removed. Here's what the text said in 2 Samuel 4. When they arrived at Hebron, they presented Ishbosheth's head to David. Look, they exclaimed to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth the son of your enemy Saul who tried to kill you. Now, a little bit of information about beheadings. Uh, This is interesting. You can use this at dinner parties. The Old Testament is full of beheadings. In fact, all of ancient times were full of beheadings. And when we read these stories, we think, man, that's gory. How gruesome is that? But here's why they beheaded people. Because they didn't have iPhones. That's why they beheaded people. Okay? Nobody had a camera. They couldn't capture the moment. The only way to prove that someone was dead, I'm going to make this rhyme so you can remember it, okay? The only way to prove that someone was dead was to show up somewhere with their head, okay? There you go. Um, (laughs) Just right there for you, okay? Write that one down. You're going to use it someday. Okay, that was the only way you can prove that someone was truly dead. I mean, the only other way is to lug the entire body around, and who wants to do that? That's kind of cumbersome, right? So much easier to just carry their head. Uh, so the only way to prove that Ishbosheth was in fact dead was to take his head with them. So they cut off his head, throw it in a bag, show up, present it to David, expecting that they're going to get a reward, right? Because they have removed the last obstacle to David becoming the king of the entire nation. So they present the head. They're so excited. They're elbowing each other in the ribs like, this is it. David answered. But David said to Rechab and Baana, the Lord who saves me from all my enemies is my witness. The Lord who didn't need your help and didn't ask for your help That's kind of the subtext there. 
Someone once told me Saul is dead, thinking he was bringing me good news, but I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. That was in that big section of story that we skipped over. That's the reward I gave him for his news. Now they're not so happy. Elbowing has ceased. How much more should I reward evil men who have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Shouldn't I hold you responsible for his blood and rid the earth of you? At which point the people around David are saying, how can you say Ishbosheth is an innocent man? He was claiming the kingdom that belongs to you, but in David's mind, that's not how he thought. It's God's will, God's way, and God's time. God's will, God's way, in God's time. So David gave an order to his men, and they killed both of the brothers, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it, which was a sign of honor. They buried his head in Abner's tomb at Hebron, and after Ishbosheth was dead, and after his demise, the other 11 tribes did finally declare for David, and at last, finally, 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 he would become the king of the entire nation. After being a fugitive for eight years, after being at war for seven more years with the house of Saul, the text says this, then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. This was no mystery. Everybody understood that David was destined to be king. They just couldn't understand why he didn't just grab it, why he didn't just take it for himself, why he didn't just seize the throne. And when all the elders of Israel from all 12 tribes, when all of them had come to King David at Hebron to crown him, to hand him the power, in this moment, David shows his true greatness. In this moment, David applies everything that he has learned in the wilderness. In this moment, he shows extraordinary maturity, maturity he would not have had at 15, at 20, or as we saw, certainly not at 22. But the difficult lessons he'd learned hiding and running from King Saul, in this moment he would apply them and he would show his greatness. Think about this. They're about to hand him the power. He's holding all the cards. His word is law. He already has the influence. He's the most powerful person in the room, even without the crown. And in this moment, the text tells us that King David made a covenant with them in Hebron. Now, a covenant is like a contract. A covenant in this context is, I will do this if you'll do this, and if you'll do this, I'll do this. It was an arrangement. It was an agreement that King David made promises to the people. And this was completely unnecessary. He didn't have to do this. He didn't need to. He was now the king. His word was law. So why in the world, after being mistreated all these years... And again, he's facing a group of elders who did not support him when he was on the run. They chose to ally themselves with Ishbosheth. He could have exacted vengeance on every one of them, but he didn't. Instead, he made a covenant with each and every one of them. Why? When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And in this moment, this is so powerful. In this moment, David recognized in public that he would be a king under authority. In this moment, he submitted himself to God's law, which meant as a leader, he was submitting himself to the people over which he would rule. This was his way of saying, this is way of saying that I am a king, but I am not the king. Because as we said in the first part of this series, with all of David's ups and downs, with all of his flaws, David never confused himself with the king of Israel. 
He knew he was not that person. And they anointed him king over Israel. And David was 30 years old, and he reigned over Israel for 40 years. Now we're going to pick the story up right at this point next week as we finish up this series, and we'll take it to the end. You're not going to want to miss this, but here's the point. David waited. This is incredible. David waited 15 years for God to give him what he had been promised. 15 years. He waited 15 years for God to give him what he knew was coming. And during that time, he learned some extraordinary lessons that would make him a good and right king. He learned that leadership is always a stewardship. You're taking care of something that belongs to someone else. Leadership is always a stewardship and that even kings are accountable. And when you read this story, there's something inspiring about it. But here's the thing. Whenever we watch someone do the right thing, uh, as I said up front, whenever we see a leader, leader say no to themselves so they can say yes to the people they're leading, it's always inspiring. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not enough for us to be inspired because that kind of greatness is actually required. And here's why I say that. This is so cool. A thousand years later, it's weird to think of that, a thousand years after this took place, 20, just 20 miles north of Hebron where David was crowned, 20 miles north of where all this took place in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus would model this kind of greatness in the most unusual and unexpected way. But there would be a twist, and here's what happened. John, who was there, who was an eyewitness of all these things, lived to be an old man and gives us some of the greatest literature about Jesus. John, who was there, here's what he wrote about this incredible moment when Jesus modeled, and also David modeled, but Jesus modeled it with a twist. It was just before Passover, and the Passover festival is taking place, and it's when the Jewish people would celebrate annually the moment or the time when God led the nation out of Egyptian slavery, and this was a big, big celebration for the Jews. It continues to be for many Jewish people today, and Jesus, during this Passover, this would be his last Passover with his disciples before he's crucified, and he's gathered them all in what's referred to as the upper room, his special room where they would meet for the Passover meal, and so they're finishing up the Passover meal, and John, who would, I'm sure, who would interview all the detail out of Jesus later, because what happened in this text, next moment was so incredible, John says this in John 13, Jesus knew that his hour had come, there it is, Kairos time, his hour had come, this is the moment with a purpose. His hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. Jesus knows that in just a few hours from this point, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be crucified. This is after being chased all over Judea and all over Galilee the last three years by the people that were supposed to identify the Messiah, but who missed it. And he would be arrested by the very people he came to save, but they would arrest him and crucify him anyway. And like David, the parallels are amazing. Like David, he's been anointed by God, but not recognized. And like David, during the same meal, he would inaugurate a brand new covenant. Not between God and the 12 tribes of Israel, like David did. He would initiate a brand new covenant between God and all of mankind. Not through the blood of a sacrificed animal, but through his own blood. And in this moment, this is a hinge moment in history between the time when he worked and functioned as a Jewish rabbi who did the miraculous to the moment when he recognized that the end had come. He recognized this was a very, very special moment. And here's what John said. Jesus knew, get this, that the Father had given him authority over, over what? Let me hear you say it. Over everything. God had given Jesus authority over everything. And that he had come from God 
and would return to God. In this moment, Jesus had the power without the crown, the authority without the title. He's holding all the cards. He recognizes that God has put all things under his authority. And the text tells us, John tells us, so he got up. Now here's the question. What do you do when you're king? What do you do when you're the most powerful, influential person in the room? What do you do when you've got the whole world in your hands? What's your next move? And I just want to pause for just a second and let you know how blown away I am sometimes at how God puts these messages together. In a way not even possible in my own power. Uh, you know how I know that? Uh, because God targets me with this, these talks just as much as he targets you. And I've had some of you come up to me and say, I hope everyone else is okay with the fact that you're writing these sermons just for me every week. Well, let me tell you, they're for me too. For a while now, I've been working my way through a secular leadership book uh, called Leaders Eat Last, where the author takes you through a journey of what it means to put the needs of the organization and most importantly, the people you're leading before yourself. And it's one of the most biblical, non-biblical books I've ever read. It's, just, it's powerful. And the Holy Spirit has been challenging me in a lot of areas of my own life and my own leadership. And then Melissa has been reading a book by a man named Charles Sheldon. The book is called In His Steps. And this book is the story of a preacher whom God transforms through the simple phrase, what would Jesus do? And yes, that book, written 120 years ago, is what sparked the initial wristband craze uh, a little ways back, WWJD. And as she's been reading it, she's kept saying, Jeff, you need to read this book. You need to read this book. And I read it like when I was in college. But she's like, you need to read it now because it will change the way you live. It will change the way you pastor. It will change the way you love people. And I, I kept pushing it away. Great, I'll, I'll read it sometime. Thanks, babe. I'll get to it someday. And then this sermon happens, where the Holy Spirit leads me to this story of David, and then to this moment in Jesus' life. And this sermon, I'll be honest, it took me a long time to get through writing it because I had to keep stopping to repent. To ask God to forgive me. To ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen me. To help me to be a better leader, a better pastor, a better father, a better husband to lead like Jesus led. And it was hard to finish this sermon. And there are times where it's just one of those moments. You ever have one of those seasons where God keeps putting the same message in your path in different ways through different people and there's just no escaping it? You can't get away because God is going to get it, the message across no matter how thick-skulled you may be. Where you know he's saying something profound and potentially life-shaping for you. Have you ever had one of those moments? I mean, maybe like me, you're having one of those moments right now. And John continues. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And then he put back on his robe that showed, yes, he was still a rabbi, that, yes, he had the authority, and he sat down again. And I, I have to think he had a big grin on his face, or at least he was smiling ear to ear on the inside. And I think that nobody said a word because they didn't need to say anything. He had just preached the most powerful lesson that he would preach to those group, that group of people. 
He had just done something that was so obvious what he meant by what he did that he didn't need to say anything. He didn't need to drive the point home, but he did say something, and maybe he said it for my benefit. Maybe he said it for your benefit, but they knew. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. It's like Jesus is saying, so guys, in these moments where you think you're something, in those moments where you think you're somebody, when someone hands you the keys, when they show you to the corner office, when you get the opportunity of a lifetime, when they set the crown on your head, in that moment, look for more feet to wash. Who can you serve? Because maybe the greatest reflection of our maturity, perhaps the thing that says more about our spiritual maturity than anything else, is what we do when we have the authority when we have the power, when we have the influence. How we respond when it dawns on us that we're the most powerful person in the room, the locker room, the classroom, the boardroom, any room. And let's be honest, at some level, in some capacity, someone's already handed you the keys. Because you've got a title. You wear some crown for somebody. You're a father, you're a mother, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're a manager, you're an owner, you're a captain of the team. Maybe you're the big brother, you're the big sister, you're the president, you're a board member, you're a scheduler, you're an admin assistant, but you have authority in some capacity. And we would all do well to embrace the greatness that David learned the hard way and that Jesus modeled for us. That when you are the most powerful person in the room, you leverage your power for the benefit of the other people in the room. That when you're the most powerful person in the room, when you're the most powerful person in the relationship, you leverage your power for the benefit of the other people in that relationship. This is what David learned in the desert. This is what Jesus modeled for us with his disciples. And as a follower of Jesus, this is not optional. Because even the Son of Man, even Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was not just Jesus' calling. It's ours. We are to give our lives to reach as many people as possible. Imagine if all of us with influence led that way. Imagine if all of us lived that way. History tells us that that kind of selflessness changed the world once. We saw it in Jesus. And perhaps it will again when it dawns on you that you've got the power, that you've got the authority, and you've got the influence, look for a way to wash more feet. Look for a way to leverage that power, that authority, that influence for the benefit of everyone else in the room. That's what your Savior did for you. That's what Jesus did for me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the example you set for us. Jesus, when you took off your robe and you... You got the towel and the basin. The disciples freaked out a little bit because it was so contrary to what was expected, to what people thought should happen. And yet, Jesus, you did it anyway because it was the right thing to do and because you wanted to show them a better way. God, help us to defy expectations, to go against what is normal, to not just follow the pattern of our culture, that when you get the authority, you use it to climb even higher. But God, when we get a position of authority, when we have a leadership potential, God, let us use it to bless those people that we're in leadership over. God, I pray that you would help us to always seek to put others first, 
God, let us always be looking for the next feet to wash, for the next person to serve, for the next person to bless, that we would decrease, that others would increase. God, help us to lead that way. Help us to love that way. And in doing so, God, let us transform our culture. Let us change our world by the way we lead and the way we love. We thank you, God. Help us to do it this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.